Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The shooting in Fredericton, New Brunswick, which claimed the lives of two police officers. I spoke with Tom Stamatakis, president of the Canadian Police Association, and Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor. Have a listen. It's the illogic associated with banning law-abiding citizens from owning a firearm. Question then becomes, is it illogical to demand tougher gun ownership laws across the board in Canada? Justin Trudeau promised Vaden Earl face-to-face he would assist in bringing Mr. Earl's 13-year-old adopted daughter Widleen to Canada from Haiti. She is still out of the country without a permit to enter. What is going on? I spoke with Vaden Earl from the Dominican Republic. Here's what he said about what's happening to the child. Fredericton, New Brunswick yesterday, and uh, a very sobering day for everybody in this country. Four people lost their lives. I tell you, when I heard this news yesterday, I think like everybody else in, in Canada, it was just a gut punch. It was just an absolute gut punch, and it comes at the time when we're talking about firearms, when this whole country's talking about firearms, and various politicians have various options or suggestions. And joining us on the program is Tom Stamatakis. He's the president of the Canadian Police Association. Tom, thank you so much for joining us, and condolences, heartfelt condolences to you and all your members across Canada today. Thanks, uh, Roy. Um, must be just a hugely, hugely difficult day for for everyone in in the police service. How do you how do you react as a as a as a police officer? What's I mean? How do you go to? I guess the question that somebody asked me uh, earlier today was, how do they go to work the next day? How does a police officer go to work the next day? So let me ask you that question. Well, I think everyone initially reacts with a lot of disbelief and um, shock that it's even happened, particularly in a country like Canada, where, generally speaking, um, this isn't, uh, fortunately, a regular occurrence, although it happens too often at all, anyway. Uh, and then there, and then I think that's followed with a period of self-reflection where people start to think about, you know, and and it, it sort of hits you in the face that, yeah, sometimes you can go to a call and, and this could be the outcome, and, and obviously it's an outcome that nobody wants. So I think what you do is you reflect on your training, you think about the things that you do, the things that have become too routine, and you try and, you know, push forward knowing that you still have to go to work, but how do I go to work and, and try and approach calls and incidents as safely as I can so that you can go home at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. There must be a significant number of officers who found themselves in situations which might have turned out far worse than the situations eventually did. And I would think that a day like this is a time when you reflect on that as well. A hundred percent. I can tell you as a police officer for about 28 years now, you, you do reflect on all those incidents that maybe just by luck or other circumstances turn out in a more positive way, but could have turned out tragically as well. And I think everybody, every police officer can tell more than one story about a, a circumstance like that. Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor, was also the executive director of the Canadian Police Association and a federal um, senior policy advisor to a federal minister for public safety. Scott, 
this uh, this must must affect you very personally as well. Yeah, I mean, anybody who works uh, with law enforcement sees exactly what uh, Tom has uh, just uh, described. I mean, I I remember that as a prosecutor as well too, and it's in the it's the thing that that really struck me right from the get go was that the nature of the work that we you know these people perform and that we call on them to perform on behalf of society. Uh, they go to work every single day not knowing exactly what they're going to be facing, yet they still do it. And they're also, as you described, the people when something uh, bad happens and something dangerous, a dangerous situation occurs, they're the ones who actually go to try to help the public, which is exactly what happened in this case. So it is a, an understandable reflection by people that I think there's a, a realization um, that, you know, these are, are people who literally put their lives on the line every single day. Mm-hmm. I remember a police officer saying to me on, on air, this is a long time ago, your emergency becomes my responsibility. And I've, I've never forgotten that. And it just, I think it just encapsulates what it is that it means to be a, to be a cop. It's, it's not just the, the radar gun, as I said before. It's somebody who is there and says, Okay, I'm on your side, and uh, that can be extremely comforting. Now, the the, the discussion of the, the whole issue that we've been talking about in this country over the last weeks, and much longer than that, but specifically over the last weeks, it's been a, a national focus, is the firearm, the gun. Is that the common denominator in threats to police in Canada? Tom, let me ask you that. Well, there's... Significant threat to police related to firearms in this country, particularly uh, when it comes to organized crime and gang activity and the proliferation of um, guns in terms of the kinds of activities people involved in gang activity are involved in on a day-to-day basis. And then when it comes to firearms, the other threat comes from often from people who are in some form of crises or another and, and, and resort to whether it's the use of a firearm against another person that's maybe the subject of their anger or, or involved somehow in whatever crises they're involved with or for some other reason decide to uh, use a firearm um, in response to whatever they're dealing with. So significant amount of risk comes from that. But, you know, police officers are exposed to risk from all manner of other situations, whether it's, you know, running into a scene that you don't know anything about in terms of the environment or any harmful chemicals that you might be exposed to. There's all kinds of uh, circumstances where police officers are injured as a result of a traffic accident while they're performing their duties or trying to enforce uh, traffic regulations. So it is just the nature of the work and you try and train and mitigate the risk as much as you can, but you that's the issue with our work is we have no control often around the environment that we work in and we can never predict what's going to happen and when something happens it usually happens very dynamically very quickly and you're really having to respond uh, in seconds and there's just no playbook for that often yeah tom i i promised i wouldn't keep you very long I, i do appreciate you coming on the show and i know there are a lot of things that you have to do today and lots of people want your time Thank you, and uh, to everyone uh, at the Canadian Police Association. God bless you guys, you men and women. Thanks, Tom. And uh, and and everybody, stop and just thank a thank a police officer today. Thank Thanks you, Thanks very much, and you're welcome. 
Scott Newark is with us, former executive director of the Canadian Police Association and uh, adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University and former prosecutor in Alberta. You like what uh, what uh, Doug Ford and Bill Blair are doing? Yes. Um, the uh, and they're uh, consistent with what we even uh, discussed last week about this, in that it's uh, not. Uh, uh, just simply politically motivated. Uh, the uh, announcement by the uh, uh, Premier Ford of specialized and targeted funding uh, to create uh, special uh, Crown and um, uh, police gun uh, units, that is a really, really effective strategy in my experience uh, because it sends a big message that this is a subject that the, uh, the government uh, takes seriously. Uh, it's uh, going to be making sure that people. It's going to. Uh, I, I think to put it bluntly, uh, it is a, a, a targeted effort to end the revolving door uh, approach of our justice system to gun and gang offenders, uh, and that's going to be an opposing bail. And as well, I think you're going to see because there's a uh, 18 million dollars as well that seems to be um, allocated for different um, uh, support measures, including probably technology. I bet you you're also going to see some, finally some funding uh, uh, created for. Uh, using electronic monitoring of people that do get uh, bail, making sure that we take specialized efforts to stop the smuggling of guns coming uh, into Canada from the United States between ports of entry. CBSA has done a really good job at the actual ports of entry, but it's between the ports of entry where we need to uh, to do that. And so those are targeted measures, and I'm, I'm glad to see them. Uh, Bill Blair, right about the same time, uh, made a, a couple of statements, and I think it absolutely captures the right approach because he said he's gotten the mandate to essentially look at all measures across all ministries so as to be able to find specific measures that they can take related to gun violence and uh, gangs. And that is a, an effective approach, in my opinion, that's been supported. There was a story as well, too, about the uh, lack of, uh, frankly, sense in the way we even collect gun data or um, uh, crime statistics related to guns. And again, that was something that uh, Tony Bernardo and I spoke about last week. And it is clear from that that there is essentially a lack of focus in the way in which the Canadian Firearms Program is collecting gun data, which would be valuable to inform us what kinds of strategies would be necessary. And this is something that, that uh, I mean, Roy, we've spoken about this for years when we've uh, talked about crime statistics generally. And the work I did with the uh, McDonnell-Laurie Institute on crime statistics and analyzing the methodology, and that's what's been exposed now, is that in some parts of the country, and I happen to know the guy that was cited, RCMP Inspector Chris McBrien, they were actually getting the right information about whether the gun, what the, the sorts of the guns were, whether they were smuggled in from outside or whether they were domestic. Yet that program that was actually done, the National Canadian Firearms Program run by the RCMP wasn't doing it which is nuts. And so this, I think, is a combination of some um, activities and possibilities and areas where work needs to be done that give me some cause for optimism. Yeah, it seemed too often that uh, departments and government agencies were working across purposes. Yeah. And, and what happened, Scott, as well, when we found out, when Alan Rock, who you, who you like and who you worked with on this on the registry initially, yes. uh, he was on this program and he said it would cost, as he told everybody, $2 million dollars. And then we find out uh, a couple of years later through the Department of Justice that it was more like a billion dollars. And at that point, it became impossible 
to discuss the gun registry without getting only negative response. I didn't like it from the beginning, yeah. but that was just me. But then when you realize that the expenditure for this gun registry was so huge, it just turned off any conversation about it in any positive way. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And I got to tell you, um, I remember those conversations specifically with uh, Minister Rock and including uh, when he overruled his officials who were trying to say, well, oh, no, we can't. I mean, I was actually in a meeting where once they said, well, no, well, we're not going to be able, the cops won't be able to check the registry to see if there are firearms linked to a specific address. And Alan, I mean, his, his eyes just rolled to his head. He goes, like, what? What are you talking Yes, it will. And he gave it the specific direction. One thing I can tell you, uh, Roy, and I was involved with this afterwards, I uh, after I was helping Stockwell Day in 2006, I reviewed the Auditor General's report on this extensively. If you went back and took a look at the actual expenditures, okay, on the gun registry, it was the moment Ann McClellan walked into the Department of Justice because Alan Rock left after the, two, the 1997 election. That's when the numbers went through the roof, including on just, I mean, it became known. The one way to uh, uh, validate any spending you wanted to do was to uh, say that what you were spending money on was linked to the gun registry. Ridiculous. Regardless and, of what you were doing. Regardless. In one instance, there was $800,000 spent on renovating an office well, as part of the gun registry. So, so no, no wonder that people turn off and people turn off the supposed officials who are supposedly in charge when you hear stories like this. Because yeah, these stories that, don't, Scott, these stories don't die. No, I agree. And not only that, when the debate was up about the long gun registry, in my opinion... Uh, the law enforcement organizations did a really lousy job in defending it. They oversold what the registry was going to do. I mean, it is actually a useful evidentiary tool and a public safety tool in the sense of uh, making sure that we have some sense of who it is that's actually acquiring guns. And, you know, if you've got to take the guns away from somebody because of a court order, and this is from a real case, you don't want to have to stand at the door and ask the, uh, the bad guy what guns he's got. Okay, but it got oversold, in my opinion, and as a result, you're quite correct. Uh, what became the focal point was the uh, enormous amount of money that was being spent for um, limited returns. Very limited returns. And we have to. We have and to. And it, sure it didn't help. It didn't help down that path again. And it didn't help the police officers that much. Actually, uh, I, I know you and I disagree on that. I, but. I don't agree with that. I've had very specific conversations. It's why we supported it at the Canadian Police Association because we had very specific examples. The one I just gave you about officers going to seize guns after a court order was made was from officers in Windsor that told me that story as well, too. But um, it had uh, specific uh, uses. When I testified on the bill, I said it was useful, but it wasn't worth taking a single police officer off the street. And as, you, you know, as you're intimating, it got bureaucratized, and the registry was originally run by the Department of Justice, Look, we talked about this before as well, too. You know, if there are these increases, for example, in uh, theft of guns from lawful um, owners, how are the bad guys knowing where to go and find the guns? Well, you know what they, you know what they say. They say the gun owners talk about having, owning firearms, which is, which is a lot of bahooey, because by the time that gets to whoever's going to steal the firearms... Yeah. Who, Frankly, who, uh, the, uh, the kind of work that the uh, the inspector, my my uh, uh, friend Chris McBrien did, that's detailed in that CBC story about the crime stats. That yeah. is exactly the kind of purpose focused analysis on data and statistics okay. and statistical reporting that needs to take place, so we can do a better job to use that information, so as to reduce 
the availability of guns to the bad guys. I want to come back to the gun ownership issue in a sec, Scott, but something that you made me aware of, and it's a great story out of Global News, great in the sense because it gets a visceral response out of you, right? It makes you. It makes you just once. Just makes your head want to explode. So why don't you explain it? Because you'll do better at it than me. Sure. Well, a- actually, let me just start by agreeing with you. This is obviously something that a reporter picked up on and had the same reaction that you and I did. So congratulations uh, uh, to her. This is a case uh, uh, out of uh, Nova Scotia. It's a guy that was convicted of second degree murder. It, uh, his victim was an off-duty female police officer that they had some kind of. A relationship that he claimed was just rough sex, uh, but he ended up uh, strangling her to death, and he uh, stuck her body in a garbage bin. And the court rejected his uh, uh, defense that this was all accidental and everything else, and he was convicted of second-degree murder. So what happens in in law in Canada is that the sentence uh, for second-degree murder is uh, life imprisonment, but the real sentence uh, discretion is there's a choice uh, for the court to make. Uh, as to when the person would be eligible for parole. And that can be anywhere from 10 to 25 years. And so that hearing is uh, getting way, and they, uh, there was opening submissions in relation to that. And the uh, the bad guy, uh, Christopher uh, Garnier, uh, his lawyer, a guy named who's a very high-profile la- uh, lawyer named uh, Joel Pink in Nova Scotia, actually made the argument that the uh, killer should receive a lower parole eligibility date. In other words, around 10 years, the minimum sentence, uh, because actually he is suffering from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, which he has uh, been inflicted with as a result of the killing that he did. So he and murdered, so he, he, right, well, he killed the police officer. Yes. And that killing so affected him that, that he now has PTSD. He should be given a benefit uh, for the stress that he got from committing the crime of murder. We uh, refer to that our legal argument. Uh, it's known as a cerebellum subrectum, or in Alberta we used to call it head up your ass. I mean, how stupid is that? Yeah. Really? Well. Okay, and so good. And, and the judge just, you can tell, you can almost hear the judge sort of, you know, like looking and rolling his eyes, but he, the judge has adjourned uh, to consider the, uh, the arguments. Uh, it takes some... Uh take some testicular courage to uh, to make that kind of argument in court. I mean, I would just... Well, either, either that or um, arrogance. Yeah, arrogance. Uh, or, uh, you know... Well, you know what I mean. Being separated from reality. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, is, it's, again, another point of why it's so important that this kind of stuff gets exposed for yeah. the public to hear. Yeah, no, no, no question about that. And uh, it reminds me of the story of the individual who killed his mother and father and then was in court and yeah. claimed or asked for leniency on the grounds that he was an orphan. Yeah. It, it just, it's, it, you're right, the, the best word is arrogance. It is absolute arrogance. But it also tells you something about the justice system when you feel that as a, as a, as a lawyer with a history that is, you know, professional, you're, you're very successful, you feel that your justice system would actually consider such an inanity or you might be able to uh, use this argument later on in a in a constructive way for your client. It just well, drives me. That's why I uh, certainly hope that uh, the judge uh, gives the uh, argument the amount of consideration that, that it, it deserves, deserves, which is zero. All. Question for you: So here you are. You also work with the border guards, the yeah. customs officers, CBSA. 
Um, former Crown Attorney, so you've seen everything come across your desk and uh, some horrific things. You were the executive director of the Canadian Police Association, so you're you're associate, your knowledge, and, uh, and a senior uh, advisor to the federal minister for public safety. So you know the systems inside and out, backwards and forwards. What makes sense to Scott Newark as far as gun ownership is concerned in Canada? Fundamentally, we come back to the question of should guns be allowed to be owned uh, by private individuals? And or should it be discontinued? If you discontinue it, I'm just going to say this very quickly. They've done that in the UK and in London. I believe they have a stabbing, a mortal stabbing every three days. The two may be connected. They may not. But what makes sense to you as far as gun ownership legislation in Canada is concerned? Well, um, I think I um, I mean, I personally uh, uh, don't. I think only uh, cops in the military should have guns, but I would not. Uh, impose that view on society, especially not a society that has a history of allowing lawful ownership of firearms. I definitely think, given the nature of what the object is and the potential lethality, that there is a public interest in regulating how things are done, including licensing and as well in registration of firearms so that we have access to the information. My concern is probably more... um, uh, about the motivation. Uh, I don't think, uh, and we have different uh, culture than the United States. Uh, theirs is one where their you know, independence uh, was uh, uh, literally created out of armed conflict. That was not the case here. And uh, we decide uh, governments and policies by ballots, not bullets. But having said all of that, I think the important point is to recognize, and I, and I accept it, that we have lawful gun ownership in Canada, so we need to keep an ongoing analysis, in my opinion, of how we are actually doing things, both in the laws and the sense of the, the crimes that are defined and the penalties that are defined, and take a look at the sections of the criminal code. I mean, it is a really, really detailed uh, regulata- uh, regulated uh, uh, area of our law. Uh, and also to look at the preventive measures, I agree with the notions that we should make sure that we have the most information that we can about people who have firearms. So, for example, um, you know this guy uh, Hussein, who was the Danforth shooter, uh, supposedly he was apprehended under the Mental Health Act. If somebody is apprehended and detained because of that, it's because they present they are perceived to present a danger to themselves or to others. I think that information should be given, for example, to law enforcement so that we can make determinations as to whether or not people should possess firearms. But don't oversell it. And the other thing is, and this is where the bureaucracy has crept in, in my opinion, Roy, um, success should not be measured on imposing new restrictions on lawful gun owners. Okay? You want to target. Process is supposed to serve purpose. So, for example, what we were talking about in the last segment, looking at the data, see where the illegal guns are coming from. Do we have deficiencies in our databases? Uh, Are guns being smuggled across the border between ports of entry? Are there issues about people, you know, acquiring guns lawfully and then selling them. That's the kind of targeted statistical analysis that needs to be done in relation to this subject, because I don't think there's any question uh, that there is an increasing um, uh, use and even, frankly, societal acceptance uh, amongst some people in society, uh, you know, that they can basically do what they want. And that includes, look at the, you know, the gangs, 
uh, in uh, in Toronto, in Ottawa, in British Columbia. And so I think we need to respond to it and recognize that a factor in it that is making it more serious and therefore more relevant to public safety is the use of, of guns. But do it in a targeted and um, uh, purpose-focused way, not just through bureaucracy. I have about 30 seconds here, Scott. Let me just yeah. ask you for your thoughts very quickly on who you side with. Do you side with uh, John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, who says no. no handguns, or do you side with Premier Ford, who said no? That doesn't make sense. Um, Doug Ford. Okay. Mr. Newark, it's always good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. Well, sir. See you. All the best. Scott Newark on The Roy Green Show. The issue of firearm ownership in this country is batted around on a regular basis, and we find that just like with health care, it becomes a political football, a political tool that is used at the uh, time of greatest convenience as the path of least resistance by people who are in public office and like the job, and then they just jump onto what seems to be the most convenient argument that they can make. Call me a cynic. Tony Bernardo is the executive director of the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. That's a lobby organization for legal gun owners in this country. And we've talked to Tony on uh, many an occasion about this issue. In fact, last weekend, he was on the air with us with Scott Newark, who was with us last hour. Tony, uh, good to have you back in a terrible situation on Friday. But once again, it brings forward the argument or the question, what do we do? Where do we go? What steps do we take? And one of the, the uh, one of the positions that is taken is, and you've heard this many times and argued against it, is if there's no private gun ownership, then situations such as the one in New Brunswick and other shooting crimes that have become infamous in this country probably would not happen. What's the response? Well, Roy, we hate seeing this happen. You know, um, all of us are family people. And somewhere, somewhere in, in New Brunswick, there's family grieving. It's a terrible thing. But we don't know yet what's happening in New Brunswick. You know, right now, I mean, they've just announced this, the arrest of the, uh, the suspect. And there's no circumstantial uh, of what's happened has been released to the public. We can look at, at the, uh, the Danforth shooter. And we can say that no amount of gun control in Canada would have stopped that, because it was a, you know a gun that was smuggled in from the U.S. As a matter of fact, we don't even know what the gun is. The police haven't even said what it is, but the police said it originated from the, in the United States. Um, there's going to be crime guns coming across the border, and you know we we talk about all the time these crime guns coming across from the United States, but that is the only place they come from. As long as there's a demand for criminals to get these things, they will get them. Interesting that you make the statement, as long as there's a demand for these guns. And the demand for the illegal guns, I would venture, probably well over 90% of the time, uh, maybe close to 100% of the time, is from the criminal element of our society in Canada. Because they can very easily get their, for them, it's easy to get their hands on one of these on one of these guns, and then use it for whatever purpose they intend, and then either get rid of it or pass it on to the next person. Well, that that's absolutely correct. Uh, you know, it, people never think about the fact that we've already banned all these drugs. 
and yet they bring drugs in with impunity. If, if you can bring in a large quantity of drugs, why can't you bring in the guns to protect that money? And of course, you can. So, I mean, people are, are, are projecting a wishful thinking onto this issue. They say, if only we banned guns in Canada, there wouldn't be any. Well, I mean, come on. Interesting, something else that you said at the very beginning when you started speaking and you passed on condolences from yeah. your members and from you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it made me think that one of the knee-jerk responses from people who absolutely abhor the idea of anyone owning a firearm legally, who make the value judgment that you don't need to own a firearm, therefore if you do, you must be a bad person. There is, there is something so important to, to note. And you were, right out of the gate, you talked about how, you made the point that the gun owners of this country are not callous about what happened yesterday. They care deeply about it. And, and that was, that's what has to be remembered. Legal gun owners are people like you, like moms and dads, uh, right across this country. There is nothing, nothing about them that makes them any different to other people in Canada that don't own firearms other than they made that decision. That's it. Totally. We have uh, doctors. We have lawyers. We have airline pilots. We have people that dig ditches. We have people that work in graphic arts, the entertainment industry. It just goes on and on. It is a total cross-section of Canadians. You and I had a conversation uh, yesterday on on the phone when I asked you if you'd come on today. And there was something I said to you. I think I said it to you. Maybe you said it to me. I can't remember who started. I think I did. And that was that gun owners, the legal gun owners, are the thin edge of the wedge fighting to retain fundamental rights. We as a so-called free society have or had enshrined freedom of expression is under assault. We have a prime minister who gets away with changing federal law in order to protect the citizenship of convicted dual citizen terrorists. So I see the legal gun owners, the people who use their firearms for either their hunters or their target shooters, um, their competition shooters, they use their firearms for recreational pursuits or for hunting. That's it. These and 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 yet yeah. they are now placed involuntarily in the position of fighting for a basic right and a basic or legal right, and and I think by doing so are defending just the fundamental rights that people have that some folks like to try to take away from you, the revisionists. Well, uh, you're absolutely right. Now, now you know when people talk about rights, it's a big subject. Canada does not have a constitutional right to own firearms, at least not one enshrined in our Constitution. You know, we could talk about the enshrinement of the 1689 English Bill of Rights, which we all inherited when Canada confederated uh, as a uh, Commonwealth country. We inherited British common law, and British common law is based on the 1689 English Bill of Rights. But you know, let, let's forget that all for a minute. Like, that's all the lawyers' constitutional arguments. Let's forget that. What happens is the government of Canada sets out tests. Those tests involve passing safety courses. They involve passing background checks. 
they involve having references, you know, a test to the, the character of the individual. There's a whole slew of tests. It takes quite literally months to get a firearms license. When you've passed all those tests, you have a right to have that license issued to you. The government has said, here's what you must do. You do it, you have a right to have that license. The same right that a driver would have when they pass all their stuff. Now, can you take it away? Absolutely. Go drive impaired, watch what happens. Well, you know, use a firearm in a careless manner, and they pulled your license so fast your head had spin. But for those people who haven't committed any offense against the society, those people still have a right to have that. So, you know, when we're talking about rights, look at it from that point of view. And then when you look at the fact that there are so many elements in our society right now that are so willing to play fast and loose with other people's rights, then you've got to look at the, the, the issue of gun ownership as being the canary in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. Interesting, again, you, I, I wrote something down as you started to address the issue of the right to own a firearm, which I said it was. And you quite correctly pointed out there's no constitutional right in Canada, as there is in the United States with the Second Amendment to the American Constitution, right. the right to bear arms. Uh, there's no constitutional right. But what I wrote were these words, as you were explaining what happens, I wrote, law bestows rights. Correct. Those are the words I wrote. So I don't have the right constitutionally to drive a car. However, when the legislature uh, puts rules and regulations in place for me to be uh, licensed to to drive a car or drive a truck or whatever, uh, then I have the right to do that because the law has bestowed my rights to proceed. Now, again, as you said, they can withdraw it but they can't withdraw it just for me unless I break the law. Same thing with the constitutional right. If you're a gun owner in the United States and you shoot and kill somebody and you have no self-defense position to take, you have, you have no defense for the position that you, for, for what you've done, right. they'll take your gun away and they'll put you in prison. They won't That's say right. you have a constitutional right to own the firearm and that extends to killing somebody. That's not, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works at all. So, you know, when you look at it in, from a Canadian point of view, it's not really that much different. No, it However, isn't. Canadians are different, you know? We're, we're, Canadians approach this in a, in a different manner. But viscerally, Tony, are we? Well, I think we are on this particular issue. Okay. I, I, think, I think that many of the people in my community, they have founded... Um, Canadian firearms ownership on a culture of safety. Okay. This terrible situation in Chicago last weekend. Mm-hmm. 33 shootings, 74 people were were wounded. I'm right. going to be speaking tomorrow with uh, with uh, one of the leaders on this whole issue in, in Chicago who wants to see the disappearance of one uh, Rahm Emanuel, the mayor of Chicago, and the police commissioner, the man I'm going to be speaking with, is Pastor Gregory Livingston. And he had a lot to do with the protest in Chicago. They closed down Lakeshore Drive, you know, that that iconic road in, in Chicago. And he's now looking, he wants to, the next protest to be at O'Hare Airport 
Because once Rahm Emanuel gone, because he says Emanuel's doing nothing to improve things, to, to help the situation. He's just making it worse. He's being politically expedient, and his chief of police is just as bad as Emanuel, if not worse. That said, have we ever had somebody in this country at the federal level or provincial level, but notably most, I suppose, the federal level, level, who's been a sensible person, a sensible voice on the issue of gun ownership? Maybe I'm putting you on the spot too much. No, not really, no. Uh, I mean, how far back do you want to go? Confederation? Uh, okay, well, John A. MacDonald um, was absolutely adamant that there should be no firearms laws in Canada and that he believed that uh, fire, firearms ownership was a constitutional right. So if we move ahead, if we fast forward to the last 40, 50 years and we get Junior's dad in uh, in the PMO, Mm-hmm. Uh, what's what since then? Well, you know, the, the Trudeau Senior didn't do a whole lot, um, but at, at, immediately at the end of his tenure, um, the, the drive started for more and more gun control. And, and since that time, and realistically, we've had Stephen Harper, who was the, the most sensible uh, on this. Now, I mean, you know, for those people who think Stephen Harper never passed any gun control measures, that's not true. He, he did. But he also loosened up some, too. You know, things like the long gun registry, which, like, quite frankly, was as useless as a screen door in a submarine, and still is. You know, people, people like, get all, like, uh, goose flesh about uh, the short gun registry. Well, the, the handgun registry's been around since 1934. Mm-hmm. How's it working in Toronto? Yeah, how is it working in Toronto? Well, well, it doesn't work. It makes people feel good. Exactly. Path of yeah. least resistance. Exactly. And, and so, you know, they get this, this short gun registry. And you know what? E- even most gun owners, most gun owners go, well, yeah, the short gun registry is okay. Yeah. But when you ask them about, well, why is it okay? Yeah. They can't tell you. Tony, I've got to go. I thank you for the time. You're a great guest. You're a reasonable person. Executive director of the Canadian, what is it? Shooting sports. I knew that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you, Tony. Thanks, All the best. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Roy Green isn't afraid to get his hands dirty while getting to the heart of every issue. It's part of the job. This is the Roy Green Show. So we have uh, been talking for a couple of months now, intermittently, about Whitleen Earl. She's uh, 13 years of age, as she pointed out to me when she was on the air with me last weekend. I thought she was still 12, but uh, she pointed out she was 13, or Vaden did, her adoptive dad. Anyway, Whitleen is a child who suffered tremendously because of the Haitian earthquake. Her mom uh, died. Uh, after the earthquake, and uh, Vaden, who was in Haiti and the Dominican Republic, uh, doing work there, and his family, uh, got to know Whitleen's mom and uh, got to know Whitleen. And uh, mom and daughter would go to um, 
refuse location, euphemistically known as a garbage dump, and they would try to find things in the in that area, in the dump, that they could sell. So they could get some money to buy some food. And uh, then mom died, and this little girl needed help. So she was adopted by Evaden and his family. So now she's adopted by a Canadian family. You'd think the rest of it would be easy, that it would be easy for her to enter Canada as the daughter of a Canadian family, right? Simple, no problem. After all, at Roxham Road, that uh, twins Quebec with New York State, there are many people of Haitian origin who are just walking into Canada without any paperwork, without any legal reason to be here. If the, you know, that agreement between the United States and Canada, the Safe Third Countries Pact, has any, has any bearing any longer, they have no reason to be here. However, the federal government is going to put has already put fifty million dollars aside and is providing accommodation, and uh, and and bending over backwards to take care of people who are entering the country illegally. I know immigration lawyers will be all upset about what I just said. Live with it. So, why then is Woodlean not here? Why when? The Prime Minister of Canada, one Justin Trudeau, met with Vaden Earl face-to-face. wasn't on the phone. They were looking at each other face-to-face. Why is it when the Prime Minister said that he would do whatever he could to get Willene into Canada, why is she not here? I'm going to talk to Vaden in about 30 seconds, but first, I want you to hear this young lady. I had an opportunity to speak with her just a little bit last weekend. Hi, Willene. Hi. How are you? Good, and you? I'm just doing great. Whereabouts are you now? Are you in the Dominican Republic? Yep. I am at my sister's house right now. Okay. And how badly do you want to come to Canada? Really bad. Yeah. Have you, uh, have, have you, have you been to Canada yet with your, with your family? No, I haven't. Not yet. Okay. So that's... Uh, just wanted you to get a little bit of a taste of what she sounded like. Sounds like such a great kid. And Vaden pointed out to me when I said she was 12, that no, no, she's 13. And you have to be accurate at that time. At that age, they don't want to be 12, they want to be 13. Vaden, good to talk to you again. Thanks again, Roy, for having me on. So, where do we stand? Well, we stand about the same place we did a week ago, except we're all a week older, I guess. Uh, the needle doesn't seem to be moving. And... Remind us, please, I mean, I, I did my best to try to explain what was going on, but remind us, please, where did the needle stop moving? If it, because it, what, we're assuming it was moving when you spoke with the prime minister and he assured he would help. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had a party that night because it should have been a done deal. And shortly after I spoke with, with the prime minister, I got a phone call from the right-hand um, personal assistant, I guess, of Ahmed Hussein. Minister of Immigration, and, and she literally said to me, Minister Hussein has been in communication with the Prime Minister subsequent to your talk, and they both said to all of us and all of our staff, find a way to make this work, just find a way to get it done. So she even came back, this is last October, uh, with, and said, we have a mandate to get you home. And still, here we are. And something, something has changed from then till now, 
and their their attitude is completely flipped. You know, Trudeau saw us on Canada Day and just gave us another pat answer. It's complicated. You know, don't bug me about this stuff sort of thing. So something is flipped in there somewhere, and we just we can't put our finger on what that might be. So there was the issue that she was officially designated because of a a law or a rule that uh, the Dominican Republic put in place, that she's a stateless person. That's Is that the position that Canada's adopting? Well, the... I mean, the, how do you do that? It's a chi- we're talking like about a child. A, Sorry. Yeah. And it's, it's like trying to argue a philosophical negative, right? If we, we can't get her citizenship in either of the two countries on this island. And that's not... But that's not something where you can say you went and tried and they said, no, the law here has changed. So in Dominican Republic, they've made a new law. They're not giving citizenship to any people of Haitian descent, even if they were born in this country, which would mean was born in Dominican Republic. So the law says she can't be a Dominican citizen. Haiti came back as a knee-jerk reaction to that and said, okay, we're not giving citizenship to any Haitians that were born in Dominican Republic. So we've got two countries in a standoff and three-quarters of a million people who don't have citizenship anywhere and don't belong anywhere, and, and Ludmine is in that group. And three-quarters of a million people who are in a very desperate situation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's complete abject poverty. And to add insult to injury, you know, it's one thing to be to have lost the birth lottery, if I can use that term, and been born into a place where you are rummaging through a garbage dump to survive. And now, to, to not, now not even feel safe walking from your shack to the garbage dump because you could get picked up by the military and thrown into a country you've never been to. And that's literally what's happening here on a daily basis. So what happens then if the military sees someone they feel contravenes this new Dominican law, what, what do they do? Just pick them up and take them to, to the Haitian border? Yeah, so it's it's a it's a bit of a, a mess because they're they're coming in with these big trucks and and heavy kind of heavy artillery and they're throwing these people in the back of these caged trucks and they bring them to the Haitian border but they can't bring them into Haiti because Haiti is not welcoming most of them either. Some of them uh, can prove some sort of Haitian connection so they get they're allowed in, but for the most part, they've set up a camp on the border between the two countries or you know. Look, <laughs> It's almost like a, a demarcation zone, and and there's just thousands of people that are, are stuck there. And the, the real insidious part of the whole thing, not that there's only one, but and our, our fear is that if they get picked up, there's no due process. It's not like getting deported from a country like Canada where there's paperwork and there's a hearing and there's a judge and that kind of thing. That doesn't exist. So they get picked up. We don't see them again. And... In the case of Woodleen, she's a 13-year-old, beautiful little girl. People that look like Woodleen never make it to the border because the cops are in cahoots with child traffickers, and that's the end of that. And that, and so we, we live with the reality that if she's picked up by the police, we're never going to see her again. So we have to make sure that never happens. As you were just talking, I was thinking about our foreign affairs minister, Christian Freeland, who tweeted last weekend about uh, Saudi, the Saudi Arabian government and what they were doing and has been making a point ever since, along with her boss, your friend, Mr. Trudeau, that uh, yeah. that they will stand up 
for human rights, wherever human rights are violated in the world, they will be there. Maybe they just can't find Haiti and the Dominican Republic on the map. Maybe they're just not aware of this Dominican law. Maybe Justin Trudeau's forgotten about your conversation with him about Whitlene. But don't you think that if they're going to be consistent with their yeah. argument to, 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 to defend people's human rights, that here's a perfect opportunity to actually do that and quickly? Yeah, or, or maybe the other option is tweets like Freeland's tweet a week ago is what we've seen for the last three years in this government. It's just a grandstand virtue signaling, look how, look how great we are. And it's cool when you can do it and get the, get the upside, get the political upside, but they don't, they don't realize that if you're going to give that to one, you've got to give it to all. And it's the same thing when Trudeau gave us his green light, he's going to bring with him home, he was autographing bring with me home protester signs. But he autographed the signs. I mean, that is as bold as Freeland's tweet. They're coming out and saying we're going to do something, but when the rubber hits the road, they're not qualified enough to even know what their tweets are going to do. That's the problem. This is really, really deeply, deeply disturbing because we're talking about a child who you and your family have adopted, which is wonderful and and yeah. and it's 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 great if we can get her into the country but there must be other widlings who have not been adopted by anyone who are living in constant daily fear that they will be picked up by the Dominican army and as you said they will not make it to the border if they're attractive kids because again quoting quoting you or paraphrasing you the army has deals with human traffickers so these these kids would God knows what would happen to them. So they, you know, Whitley at least has you and your family on her side, and has this radio program on her on 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 her side, and and Canadians who are deeply interested in her on, on her side. Um, but there there are others, there are other kids who would be just must be terrified on a on a minute by minute basis. Yeah, and it's there's there's tens of thousands of with means and we we ask ourselves over and over again like what what would have happened if we didn't have you know the, the 20 years of, of humanitarian aid history that we have and the connections that we have or the ability to raise funds that we have the ability to call the media because we we're not the normal case we're we're a bit of an aggressive family with some connections so we're able to get her story in front of a lot of people mm -hmm. but the average the average family that's dealing with this does not have those connections. And so here's an example. Roy, last night, Ludwig's been bugging me all week. She wants to go visit this one friend of hers, who's also a, a, a young Haitian girl in a family of about eight or nine kids, and a single mom is raising them. And they're hiding as well from the police. And Ludwig really wanted to go visit her. I didn't know why. She just wouldn't let it go. So I took her out last night to visit this family. And as we're leaving, the mom pulled me aside, and she said, we haven't eaten in three days. We have nothing. I'm, I'm not asking you for anything, but can you pray for us? So, of course, Woodleen is the kind of kid that Woodleen is. She knew they were starving, and she brought her allowance. She's 13. Yeah. She brought her allowance to give to this kid to see his family at eight. And our prime minister is willing to repatriate ISIS fighters and criminals 
Yes. He's done it. I got nothing. I, don't, I have no explanation for this. He's done it. Bill C-6. Yeah, 13-year-old child. Not as important as ISIS terrorists returning to Canada to this prime minister. Clearly. Clearly. Otherwise, he and Mr. Husson would be doing what Mr. Trudeau said he would do. Seems to have a track record of making promises to parents about kids and and then uh, wandering on and forgetting about them. We've had another story, and I just want our listeners to know that the principal in that other story no longer wants to talk to media about it, which, of course, we respect. And and folks, please, go to bringwidleanhome.com, bringwidleanhome.com. And Widleen is spelled W-I-D-L-E-N-E, W-I-D-L-E-N-E, bringwidleanhome.com. And Try to persuade the man at the head of the Canadian government, our elected leader, the man who represents Canada, try to get him to do what he said he would do. Vaden, tell us what happened as far as, I mean, other media getting involved. You talked about being a family that's proactive and you want to get things done for Whitleen. So the CBC got engaged. What happened? Yeah, the CBC um, ran a story about a year ago, and um, that particular story was certainly kind of came out a little differently than we we anticipated when we when we did the interview. Then subsequent to that, I've been talking to a number of people there, and they wanted to push it on a on a national scale. I, I don't know what show exactly, but anyways, they wanted to go right across their network, and they called me and talked to me about it. And one of the caveats to them giving the public our story was that they wanted an exclusive interview with Wadeen. And I'm, I'm hesitant. You're actually the first person that I've let talk to her in the media, and that was last week. And I'm hesitant because she's in a very fragile situation. So I said, you know, I'm willing, I'm willing to do that. Then we can do a Skype interview or something like that. But I need, to, I need to vet the questions, and I need to see what she's going to be asked so that she can be ready for it. And they, they absolutely refused to, to let me do that. And... And they, they certainly did express some concern about my being critical of, of the Trudeau government. So I just said no. I mean, as much as I want this story to be on everybody's TV across the country, I can't let them censor and, and for lack of a better word, use whatever you know vernacular they want with my 13-year-old daughter who's been through more crisis than these reporters are ever going to know. So I just said no. Good for you. What uh, what conditions have I set on any of our conversations? <laughs> tell the truth, and that's about it. <laughs> the only condition is that we tell the truth, yeah. Get this little girl into into Canada. That's why I'm on here, right? <laughs> Th- thanks, Vaden. Thank you. And just in a, in in the twenty seconds we have left, what is v- Widleen saying to you about all of this? She's very frustrated. Um, and it's really, it's digging deep into her psyche because as a child who went through so much she went through in the first four years of her life and the loss that she went through, right. um, to be now experiencing this, she feels unwanted. She knows that she's loved and she's wanted by her family and by so many supporters, but 
yeah. unwanted by an entire country. Well, we're going to we're going to keep pushing, and you and I will stay in touch on the uh, on the radio. And Vaden, thank you for joining us today. And folks, it's bringwhitleenhome.com. Bringwhitleenhome.com. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed it, tell a friend. And remember, The Roy Green Show podcast is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Or visit RoyGreenShow.com. Thank you.